0: Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for the challenges of the songs we have sung again today. Father, it is our desire for you to be glorified in all the earth, for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be lifted up and exalted above every name. Father, it's our desire that in our lives the Lord Jesus Christ might have his way And Father, as we come to your word, we are so grateful and so thankful for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the continued work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he is still involved in convicting the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And we pray, Father, with confidence, knowing that as we open the word of God, it is the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit bone and marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Father, even as Pastor Chris has mentioned this morning, we do have our minds and hearts so cluttered with so many different things. We pray in this sense for freedom to be able to be sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit this morning, and that, Father, you would use this passage to encourage and enrich believers to challenge each one of us, and also to challenge those who do not know Christ, that, Father, they might hear from you. We commit our service to you in the preaching of the word, in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Entitled this morning's message, True Freedom, just taking it right, really, from the passage, our freedom indeed as we come to the end of verse 36. It was Patrick Henry that many are familiar with, former founding father, former governor of Virginia, that said these words, give me liberty or give me death. It is the state of New Hampshire that still today has on their license plate live free or die. Many of us, maybe even most of us, right in this auditorium have grown up all our lives. It's unfortunately fading in our country, but grown up all of our lives singing such songs as, My Country Tis of Thee. Unfortunately, too many people don't even know what that song is today because it's not passed on. But in the words of my country, tis of thee, we find these words, sweet land of liberty, let freedom ring. Immigrants, as they came, certainly by boat, in the early stages of our country's history, as they came to the United States of America, were greeted by the great symbol of freedom, known as the Statue of Liberty that still stands in its harbor in New York today. There is inside of the statue, and I have been inside of it, a bronze plaque that many, first of all, don't know are there, and some who think it's on the Statue of Liberty itself really on the outside, but it's not. But on the inside there's a plaque, and on that bronze plaque, these words are included and engraved in it. Give us your tired, your poor, your humbled masses yearning to breathe free. There have been, over the course of history, what are known as landlords, and there has been a cry in many a country for freedom. The concept of freedom is something that most people, young or old, including today's generations, desire. Many, by God's grace and absolutely for your benefit and my benefit, many have given their lives for the cause of freedom so that you and I could enjoy the freedoms that we have. And that is why, by God's grace, we will continue to pray for our military, it was a tremendous cost for the freedoms that you and I enjoy. And there are still many today who would die in order to retain and to continue those freedoms. Freedom is a valuable, precious privilege. It is a privilege that many Americans, in fact, I don't think I would be out of line to say, most Americans take for granted. And I will even go so far, sad to say, that I believe many Christians, or professing Christians, also take for granted. We need to realize, right at the outset of this message, and I think it's relevant in order to understand, or I wouldn't take the time to do it, relevant to our text, we need to understand that there are different, first of all, types of freedom. I don't think you'll be surprised by that, as I mentioned them. But there is such things as I've been talking about, national freedom. There is such things as religious freedom, that which, by the way, our founding fathers and the pilgrims, the the story we like to tell, and we have all this benefit in our backyard in the state of Massachusetts and so forth, but in which they came over here in the pursuit of religious freedom. The ability, that is, to worship and practice in accordance with one's beliefs. There is freedom of speech that some countries don't enjoy, that we do. There is the physical aspect of freedom, for example, and you ought to praise God if you have that, whereby you are unrestrained from illness and able to go about with freedom physically. There is economic freedom that I think we would all like to have, and that is where we do not owe anybody anything. We have no bills and no debts and uh, so forth and so on. And we could go on and on with a list, but to point out that there are different types of freedom that exist. I also want to point out early on that frequently the freedom that we say we want All we think that is best for us may not, indeed, be best for us and be good for us at all. For example, if we're thinking in terms of total freedom, and I'll mention a couple of quick definitions in just a moment, but if we're thinking of total freedom in the sense that we can do anything we want, we might find out that that's really not good because that means that anybody has the freedom to kill anybody they want. I don't think we really want that freedom. Would you want that freedom for somebody to come in here and they've got the ability, without consequence, of just killing you right now? We wouldn't want that. Do we really want total freedom on the highways to do anything we want? Sometimes when we're behind the wheel, we think we do (laughs) until a pole comes in the way. We wouldn't want that. We say we want freedom, but to have freedom on the highways where there's no regulation for speed limits and there's no consequences and so forth and so on. We really don't want that and it's not the best for society. To try to illustrate that a little bit, you can request total freedom, but if you happen to have the privilege of landing on the moon, which none of us I think have, that's why I tried to choose that one, I don't think there's anybody that would wanna say, I am free and he takes off his mask and takes off his suit and I don't need anything. Immediate death would then set in. We're not, we wouldn't want that. Oh, yeah, you've got total freedom, but if there weren't some laws and regulations, and I'm just trying to put it in perspective for you, we wouldn't want total freedom to say, well, I've got all the freedom in the world, and you know what? I'm going to go down to Salisbury Beach this afternoon, and I heard the tide is an exceptional tide. It's going to go way out, and it's going to be out there for 12 hours, and I get this building crew, and we're going to build this enormous, gorgeous, multi-million dollar home on the sand while the tide's out. Because I get the freedom to do that. You do. But I don't think you really want that, because in about six hours when that tide comes in, you're not going to have anything. But maybe better to illustrate it, fish may want total freedom, but if you take a fish out of water, it won't live too long. And the freedom that it might think that it wants might not be the best it. Hopefully I've at least tried to illustrate a couple of things to you. So there's different types of freedom that we're talking about, and we need to understand really what is it that we want and so forth. Total freedom, the concept of uh, being absent from any constraint, being absent from any subordination, and most young people think that that's what they really want. And so do most Americans think that that's what we really want. And I have to say this. So do most Christians think that that's what we really have or we really want. Where there's absolutely no re- uh, constraint, no one that we're involved in with servitude toward in any form. I think you realize that that's anarchy. That's basically what that is. We talk about the capacity to determine our own choices is, being freedom and so forth, and exercise our own free will, and that's good. But really, I think when we talk freedom, in most cases we realize, and again, it'll come back to the passage, that we're not talking total anarchy. That's not the best freedom for us, and that's not really what freedom is all about anyway. Freedom usually is best when it's related to circumstances. And let me try to illustrate that maybe in a poor way, but we'll try that we have freedom, but we're we're restricted in some ways. And I've actually done that by mentioning such things as driving and so forth, the laws of the land, even for building. But if somebody happened to be uh, locked up into a mansion, and uh, they were restricted in that mansion, they couldn't leave that, they might be given all kinds of freedom. They can roam around in that building. They can go in any room they want. They can do anything they want within the building. They have the freedom to sleep, they have the freedom to eat, they have the freedom to take showers, they have all of that freedom. But they don't have the freedom to go outside of that building, you see? The freedom is relevant to the situation. Okay, And that's really what freedom in the true course of what we really want, that's the way it should be, relevant to our circumstances when we understand it. Well, when we come up con- upon the word freedom here, of uh, being set free, I think it's important that we understand in our text what is Christ talking about? I'm going to tell you why right at the beginning. Because there are Christians who believe, I am absolutely free to do anything I want under no restrictions of anybody. Nobody's my master. I can go do whatever I please, and that's what God's called me to. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not what he's called you to. In fact, he's called you to be a slave. What? Yeah, he has. If you are a Christian, you're a slave of Christ. You have been bought with a price. I'll leave that for the end of the message. It's not what we're called to at all. What is this text talking about? This text is talking about something that we really need to understand. Total unrestricted freedom? No. Freedom of choice and decisions that I mentioned? No. It's not what this text is dealing with at all. What is it talking about? This text is talking about spiritual freedom. Now, I want you to get this. It is talking about freedom, listen, as God has designed for his creature. Freedom that God has designed or was designed by his maker. It is freedom from the power of sin. It is freedom to have fellowship with God. It is freedom, too, that he's talking about in here, and we need to understand this. To depend upon God. That's what we're designed for. We're designed to be free from the power of sin. We have been designed by our maker to have fellowship with God. We are designed by God to worship God. We have been designed by God to rule over God's creation, (coughs) while at the same time, being submitted to the one who created it. That's the freedom that we're called to. That's the freedom that the Lord's going to talk about when he talks about even salvation here and the concept of being freed from the power of sin. And eventually, when taken out all the way, when we're talking about spiritual freedom, eventually it is the freedom to live forever with our creator. That is the spiritual freedom that's talked about in our Bibles. This type of freedom that is offered by Jesus Christ has two aspects from it in this context that I have outlined for you. One, it abides in the truth. And second, it is not a slave to sin. It abides in the truth, verses 30 to 32. Let's look at it. What does this mean, it abides in the the truth? Again, verse 30. And as he spoke these things, many came to believe on him. I want you to notice... That first of all, there's two aspects. And you're seeing the first one right away onto this concept of abiding. And the first aspect is belief. It is trust. The second aspect we'll see in a few moments is obedience. But it begins with trust. Who is he talking to? What is his audience? His audience is, let's at least get this part right, professing believers, verse 30. Because it says, he spoke to these things, as he spoke to these things, many came to believe on him. We can't avoid that. Although most we've seen in our texts in chapter 8 have been hostile to Jesus, especially the leaders, especially the Jewish leaders, many came to, at least in the sense of profession, came to believe. What is that? They were convicted. They were convicted by the truth that Jesus Christ had spoken to them. They were convicted by the words that he gave them. Now this ought not to surprise us at all because he's speaking the truth and the truth is convicting and he's presented it before them and I want you to understand something that you well know if you're a believer this morning. Faith comes by what? (coughs) Hearing. And hearing by the word of God. That's correct. In order to get to the place of faith, first of all, you've got to hear or read with your eyes. Same thing. It's hearing through the eyes, if you will, in that sense. And what happens is it's got to be the word of God. A person first needs to be confronted with truth. And these people have been confronted with truth. And then people have to respond to it. Faith is not blind in spite of what the world might say. They might think that a Christian is someone who just walks by blind faith. Not at all. In fact, we have faith in information that we've received and we know that it is the truth. And so these people were confronted while some wanted to kill him. As the Lord presented to them who he was, some of them came under conviction and at least recognized or acknowledged intellectually or intelligently that what he was saying was true. A person must hear the gospel. A person must be presented with the truth in order to get saved. They must know that Jesus Christ came and why he came. And when heard, it will go through the process of performing its work. Now, I'm not here to talk about the sower and the seeds in depth, but I think some of you are familiar with that. As the word of God goes forth, some of it will go on a stony ground, some of it will go on good ground, some of it bad ground, as you know. But it does have to fall on different types of soil. There is a danger, though. And the danger is sometimes when we see this initial, they came to believe, we might react wrongly to it, and it's a big danger. Why? Because man's emotions are sometimes convicted by the moment, but there's no real depth to it. And while a profession may be made, it may not be real. I want you to notice something right away. Because this, I want to say it right away, this is something that you don't find in evangelism today. You find just the opposite. The Lord Jesus Christ has recorded in his word in verse 30 that many believed on him. You would have thought that before you get to verse 31, the banners would have come out, the balloons would have been blown up, there would have been partying going on, and tremendous celebration. And certainly, he might have had a record of how many came to profess faith in him. But he doesn't do that. Jesus was not impressed with numbers. Professing Christendom in today's evangelical circles, that's their emphasis. Numbers, numbers, many, many, many. And by the way, I'll bring it back into the message now. There are moments in which God is already working and the soil is right and people do get saved on the spot. Don't misunderstand me. God does that. And He can, as He's prepared the heart and the Word of God is given. You can have someone who quickly will come and trust in Christ when they hear it. God prepared my heart. I remember the night I got saved. God prepared my heart, and I was in that Bible study, and I went home to say the sinner's prayer. I was saved right in that room now as I look back on it. God's word had convicted me, and I knew that I needed Christ as Savior. And while the preacher was still teaching, I got saved in that room. And I know it as clear as can be right now. So God can use it that way. But I want you to notice, Jesus wasn't impressed with numbers. He wasn't trying to impress himself on anybody else as far as who he had brought to him when he says that they came to believe in him. I want you to see something that Jesus Christ was concerned about that you and I ought to be concerned about and even with the young man that I mentioned. Which, by the way, as I mentioned him, there has been follow-up already. He was concerned that their expression of faith, or their profession of faith, verse 30, was real. He was concerned that it was genuine. He was concerned that they wouldn't be a phony and not even know it, or that they would be self-deceived. He wanted to make sure that their profession was true, and not only that it was true, that they themselves knew that it was real. And I'll tell you, fellow Christians, as you have opportunity to witness to people and follow up, you want to make sure when they make a profession that it's a real one for their sake as well. And you're going to see that now as we move on. Because he challenges them in verse 31. This is all under 30 to 32 there. We're talking about professing believers, and what does he do? Verse 31, therefore, Jesus, therefore, was saying to those who had believed him. And I believe that the structure, by the way, is correct that way. They believed him. They heard what he said. They believed it. They saw it intellectually. And he's addressing professing believers. And I want you to notice this because we will see it later in chapter 8. I've already said professing believers. You're going to find out most of them were not true believers. Well, how do you know that, Pastor Dan? Well, in verse 42, God is not their father. In verse 44, they are the children of the devil. Look at it, verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. Talking to the same crowd. Verse 47. He who is of God hears me. What does he say? You, end of the verse, you are not of God. Look at verse 48 and 52. They would accuse Jesus of being demon possessed later. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say, verse 48, You're a Samaritan and have a demon. Verse 52, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. It's in the same crowd that he's he's talking to. And what I'm trying to point out to you, we need to be very careful. Just because someone makes a profession of faith, we shouldn't start writing down a bunch of numbers. Our heart should go out to make sure that they really do trust Christ and that they know that they've really trusted Christ. Because the Lord's challenging them himself. Remember chapter 6, verse 66. Go back there for a second. This was people that said they were disciples of the Lord. Remember verse 66 of chapter 6. It's important that you see it. As a result of this, many of what his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Profession is not the end of it. I said at the coffee time this morning, I went into the kitchen the, very graciously, and I appreciate it as being a servant. The people in the kitchen usually have a juice set aside for me so that as I'm greeting people, I do get a chance to get something. And I went in there talking very briefly with a couple of people, and I mentioned, if you, because a comment that was made, if you listen to the world today, basically most of the world has been saved. It's not true. It's not true at all. So be careful. He's addressing professing believers. We see that clearly. At this point, they had at least, according to verse 30 and 31, consented intellectually. To what? That Jesus was the Messiah. Have you ever heard people say, I believe that Jesus came. I believe that Jesus uh, died on the cross. I believe that he rose from the dead. That doesn't make him a saved person. I believe those things before I was saved. I believe Jesus came. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose again. That's good. That's intellectual information. I believe he said who he was. That's what you have here so far. But the second part of the challenge, this abiding in Christ, is brought out very clearly. Watch verse 31. Conditional. If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Did you catch that? He says the test of whether a person's genuine. It's good to start with belief. You've got to believe in information. You've got to believe in facts. But the true test is abiding. You must. He didn't say you may abide, but the idea is that you will continue to abide. True disciples, that word are there, it's a present situation. They will continue to abide. They will continue. They'll remain. This word abide can mean remain to dwell in, to be steadfast, or the word that sometimes we don't like, obey. That's where we get our song from. True profession of faith, one that's real, trusts. But he also does the second thing. He obeys. He obeys in his word. This is dealing with the perseverance of the saints. Someone who is a true believer, someone who has genuinely trusted in Christ, doesn't just make a profession of faith, and then you never see them again. He doesn't just make a profession of faith, and then Christ has no part in his life. That's not a true believer, I'm telling you now. That's not a true believer. A true believer, he trusts, but he continues. He abides. He remains in Christ. He stays in the Word of God. He keeps on obeying. He keeps believing Christ. And you know why? I'll mention it again for the second time. We'll come back to it at the end of the message again a third time. When you've trusted in Christ, you're free, yes, from the power of sin, as we'll see in a moment. But you are still been bought. You're owned by Christ. You are not your own. You are a slave to Christ. You belong to him. And too many Christians don't have that concept. The concept is, I've been freed because i got a ticket to heaven. Jesus Christ is not a genie in a lamp. Christians have that concept. I've been saved, and now when I have to pray, I rub the lamp and he's supposed to respond for me. That's not the case at all. Oh, you know, now I've made Jesus my personal Savior. Really? And by the way, that term's not even in Scripture. Did you know that? It is correct, the concept's correct, that I've trusted in Christ personally. Yes, but the idea is he bought me. He saved me. I belong to him. And so I abide in him and I obey. One of the evidences that we have, and one of the evidence that he wanted them to see, was if you continue, what does it mean to continue? It means to obey. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. I want you to see this. It's so important. 1 John chapter 2. This is a test for you that are sitting in the pew right now as to whether or not you're genuine. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. The one who says, I have come to know him. That's a profession of faith. And I'm going to tell you, pulpits are not teaching this. I am frightened for people that are just looking for quick professions of faith and numbers when Jesus Christ himself He wanted to see people genuinely come to him, but he wanted to be assured that they were real. Watch. Verse 4. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, watch how bold the Lord Jesus Christ is, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, that's abiding, that's continuing, in him The love of God has truly been perfected by this. Watch this. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. If you are a true believer, you will abide in him. You will remain in him. You will remain in his word. That is what Jesus taught including in salvation. Go to chapter 3, same book. Chapter 3, look at verse 24 first. 24. The one who keeps his commands abides in him. That's obedience. If you think that Christ called you to give you a ticket to heaven, and you made a profession of faith, and now you have no one controlling your life, you're free to do whatever you want, you have no concept of, of what spirituality is or what salvation is. This was tremendous cost to Christ. God sent his only begotten son because he loved us. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty and price for sin. He's drawn you to himself to come to believe on him. Why? So that you can go do anything you want. That's what Romans 6 is all about. You can't just go anywhere you want and do anything you want and have no restraint on you. That's not true freedom. That's not true spiritual freedom. That's the evidence of lack of salvation. The evidence of real salvation is you abide in him, you obey what he said, you know that you belong to Christ, and you continue on because you abide and he's the one leading. Look at verse 24 again. And we know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. Look at verse 6, same chapter, chapter 3. Just another verse. There's many other verses I could look at. No one who abides in him sins. That is, continuously goes on sinning and sinning and sinning, and that's what it means. No one who sins has, been, has seen him or what knows him. It's not talking about falling into sin here. It's talking about the pattern of the lifestyle. We're going to see in a minute. The pattern of the lifestyle of the unbeliever is sin. When you've got someone that says they profess faith in Christ and their pattern of life is sin, you can chalk it up. They don't know Christ. And if that's you, you don't know him. Get back down on your knees. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ is confronting. Who is he confronting? Those who believed in him, verse 30. Those who made a profession of faith. He wasn't dealing with the ones who were trying to arrest him. He wasn't dealing with the ones who were trying to seize him and put him in prison and kill him. He was dealing with the ones who said, I trust you. And his comment was, if you continue in my word, then is the evidence you are my disciples Indeed. One more passage. I got some other verses, but let's just go to Colossians chapter 1. I want you to see this concept of a conditional clause is not unusual. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. Um, You can look at verse 22, and you can get the context on your own. Being reconciled and so forth to God, blameless. I want you to catch the conditional clause in verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established, steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made to minister. And his whole point is, what's the evidence that you belong to him if you continue in the gospel that you said you started with? The evidence of salvation is abiding, continuing in him. What are the results? Go back to John chapter 8. He says to those who profess in him, yes, that's one. Step number one, believe. Step number two is you continue. You abide. And if you do, verse 32, then you notice this. The results are, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. By abiding in the word of God, by being in the word of God, we will know the truth, first of all, about who Jesus Christ is. If you remember what I said last week, there are a lot of people who name the name of Jesus Christ, but they don't know who he is. Jesus Christ has been making very clear to them that he is the Messiah, that he is God, that he is the only way. In fact, that's what we'll learn in chapter 14, and I think there's reference to it here, really, because you will know the truth. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. In knowing what the Lord Jesus Christ has taught, you will come to know him. And salvation is knowing God. It's having fellowship with him. Even I have oftentimes used this text too much to refer to knowing the truth as opposed to error. And that is is true. You will know the doctrine in relationship to what is truth and what is error. But it's really in relationship to really knowing God and knowing what it is to be free from sin, as we're going to see in just a moment. You will be made free. Now, how can you be made free? That's what he says in verse 32. You can't be made free unless you are in bondage, right? And he wants them to see that. Why? Because I want you to know this. First of all, an unbeliever, a person who has not yet come to Christ, if you're sitting here in church and this is new to you this morning, praise the Lord, I hope you come to understand the truth, but there are many people going around in the world that don't understand they think they know God they'd like to know God they think religion will help they think their good works will help they really don't understand and they have no idea that first of all they're dead and secondly they're a slave to sin that's exactly what you have in the text what do you mean there are many that don't know it true believer will be given true freedom in Christ and freedom from sin and that's the second aspect if you've been given freedom you're free in that you know Christ you have the freedom to worship him you are also freed from the slavery of sin, verses 33 to 36. First of all, notice the reality of the unbeliever's position. Verse 33, Jesus answered him, I'm sorry, they answered him, We are Abraham's seed, offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say to us, you shall become free? They were unaware of it. That's a tragedy. That's a normal condition. Those who don't know Christ don't know that they're lost. They are hoping they'll get to heaven. But if you put them on the spot, do they in their heart know for sure that they'll be with Christ forever? They don't. Are they afraid of death? They are inside. That's an evidence that you're in this condition. Unaware of the reality of being a bondage to sin. It's self-deception. In this particular case, they thought because they had the right national connections. Abraham. They thought because they were Jews, religious. Listen, there is no national connection. There is no religious connection by way of Jew, Gentile, anything like that that's gonna get you to heaven. No church. Roman Catholic church, Jewish denomination, this church, No church gets you to heaven. No church puts you in a right relationship with God. It's the work of Jesus Christ. They were unaware of it. They thought they were okay because of the connection to Abraham. And they said, we're free. They thought they were. They had equated, and this is important, national freedom. This is why I took the time. National freedom to spiritual freedom. They had equated religious freedom to True spiritual freedom. And they were wrong. Only Christ can offer true spiritual freedom. They were into bondage. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Keep your finger here. Go to Romans chapter 6. It was our responsive reading. Romans chapter 6. Down to verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey? We say, of course you do. Right. Now watch. Either of sin resulting in death or obedience resulting in righteousness. That's what it talked about in here. And I'll deal with that passage again in a moment. But if you go back now to John chapter 8, you see that the Lord Jesus Christ says to them in verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. They didn't see it that way. They didn't see themselves as being a slave of sin. What's he dealing with? The concept that their life was basically ruled by sin. The unbeliever, the person who has not yet come to Christ, even if they profess faith, but if the life is ruled by sin, they are a slave to that sin. Their life is under the bondage of sin. It's governed by that sin. Their thinking, their motivation is basically sin-oriented. Now, don't misunderstand the scriptures on myself. That doesn't mean that the unsaved cannot do good things. Often we, we, we confuse that as Christians. Good works do not save anybody, but the Lord doesn't say. In fact, He even uses the illustration Jesus Christ Himself, that we know how to give good gifts unto our family. You wouldn't give him a fish when He asks, or a rock when He asks for a fish. I got a little bit confused on that one, but you get the point. We know how to give good gifts. We can. The unsaved can help. All the people across the street can reach out to Haiti, and so forth. They can do that, and those are good things but not for salvation. Not for salvation. And what's the motivation? Some of them might be doing it because they think it will put them in a better relationship with God. Okay? Those decisions don't lead you to God. And what you need to see here is that their life was governed by sin. And when that's the case, when sin is ruling in the life, you're basically an unbeliever. An unbeliever. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 2 for just a minute. I'm trying with the time here to... 2 Peter chapter 2, why don't you look at verses 18 and 19. This is what the world offers to the unbeliever. Verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words, vainly enticed by fleshy desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Now watch this. Promising, it's dealing with false teachers. Promising them freedom. People want freedom. And the unsaved gets promised freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what men man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Let me try to get really down to the nitty gritty and practical. The world offers freedom to the unbeliever, they think. Freedom to do anything they want. Oh, just enjoy the lifestyle of Hollywood just in, you know, don't worry about alcohol or what you consume. And everybody thinks it's a freedom that they have, when in reality they get involved in drugs, alcohol, sensuality, and you just look around at the consequences that come from that in our world today. They're bound by it, they think it's freedom and it's gonna be a great lifestyle, and you look at the lives and the tragedy that happens and the lack of satisfaction for all those things that are pursued, that's not freedom. I think it is the life of the unsaved goes down that pathway the reality of the unbelievers go back to John chapter 8 the reality is their life is committed to sin it what rules their life in verse 35 all I want you to get out of this is it's temporal it's temporal that's what he means and the slave does not remain in the house forever what does that mean you can understand that Eventually they die, or they could have been sold. They could be killed. They could have been dismissed from their services. That's not their permanent place. However, when it's dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ, notice this. The son does remain forever. That which he was offering was true eternal life. That which he was offering was permanent. We've already seen, go back to chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. What awaits the unsaved? Remember this last week? or a couple of weeks ago, they will die in their sin, verse 21. Verse 22, the end of the verse, where I am going, you cannot come. The unbeliever can't go there. They might profess to know God, but if they don't abide in him, and that's true with you and me, abiding in him. True deliverance comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what verse 36 summarizes it with. If, therefore, the Son of Man, or the Son, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. He is the only one who can free us. The unsaved is dead, spiritually. The unsaved, who haven't come to trust in Christ, basically are bound by sin. It's the controlling factor in their life. And the only one that can free them, that was your whole response of reading. You will either yield your instruments, your eyes, your mouth, your ears, where you go with your feet, the things that you do, what you think inside, you will either yield that to God or you will yield it as instruments of sin. Instruments of sin. Christ is offered to buy us out of that. And he had, that's what he offers. He offers freedom. Freedom from what? The bondage of sin. That was what Romans, we need to go back there before I close. Romans chapter 6 to really see it. You see, the concept was in Romans that he was addressing, you think because you've been freed that you now can continue in sin? Chapter 6, verse 1. And from verses 6 through 18 that we read, and I won't read the whole thing, he basically says that you were dead. But now you're alive. Look at verse 10. For the death that he died, that is Christ, he died for sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. That's continuing on. Verse 8, if we had died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, right? He raised him from the dead. Now watch verse 9. Death no longer is master over him. And when you read it out in the passage, sin is no longer the master of the believer. He is free to worship God. He is free to have fellowship with the one true God. Sin no longer has power over my life. I've been taken out of that imprisonment. That's why I don't go back there. But don't think, as I close, fellow Christian, for one moment that you're not a slave. Freedom is not the total freedom to do whatever you want. If you were to look through the New Testament, you'd find out that Paul would always open his epistles, or usually, I should say, open his epistles with this statement Paul, the born slave of Jesus Christ. He was free, freed from the power of sin. He was freed in that he did have his wages of sin forgiven by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he had been bought with a price, and so have you, and so have I. And probably to best see that, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want you to just see these three verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So what has Christ freed us from? The penalty of hell? Yes. True. True. Life with God, yes, when I've trusted in him. But while he's freed us from that, he's bought us. We are owned by Jesus Christ. We belong to him. We are not our own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, just verses 21 to 23, notice this. Let each man remain in the condition in which he's called. This is dealing with the born and the slave, but I want you to see this. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. But if you are able to become free, dealing with slavery there. That's fine. Verse 22. He who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who was called while a free man is Christ's what? Slave. And he was dealing with the relationship of this. It didn't matter whether you were literally a slave or literally a free man in the Roman time. If you've come to Christ... You belong to him. Why? Verse 23. You were bought with a price. Do not become the slaves of men. We're not to go back to that. We're not to become the slaves of what? Man's thinking. And so in John chapter 8, what are we dealing with? Christ is dealing with true freedom. And the true freedom that's only found, that is found can only be found in Christ. True spiritual freedom. Freedom for eternal life. Freedom from the power of sin, it's found in Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And a true disciple is one that believes these things and then continues in them. Are you a true Christian? Am I a true Christian? If you've believed in the things of Christ and you continue in the things of Christ, then you are. Now you know why you hear me from the pulpit say, I don't understand how someone can say they profess in Christ And you know this. Fellowship Bible Church, we're not concerned with numbers. I'm not concerned with saying in the year 2010 we had 2010 saved. If we do, it's only to God's grace and love. I hope there's 4,010 saved. But let him keep the statistics. The point is when we come to Christ and trust in him for salvation, yeah, we have, we belong to him, but I don't know how you can say I'm going back to my old life. Or sin rules in their life, or I don't need to read the word of God, or I don't need to be with Christians. That's dangerous stuff. In fact, it's more of an evidence that you're still living like the way of the world. Just this past week in a staff meeting we were talking, and it actually happened before that, but I heard of someone that made a profession of faith in Christ, and you know what they did? They were going back to Roman Catholicism. My friend, you can't come to Christ and understand the doctrines of Christ and go back to a works system and be saved. You can't do it. In case you don't think it's true, we've had people in this church, one particular person that left was under the teaching in North Andover, and they left and went back to Mormonism. That person's not a believer. say, who are you to judge that on the authority of God's word? If you come to Christ, you continue on in the things of Christ. There are babies in the nursery that are crying for their mothers and the mothers can't wait to get to them. Really? Yeah. You know why? Because they're alive. When you're alive in Christ, you continue. You need the Lord's guidance. You will recognize that he's your master and you follow him. If you haven't come to Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ challenged these that professed faith in him. But he challenged them because he wanted them to realize that he is the way, the truth, and the life. If you haven't come to Christ, You can't save yourself. You can't get away from that bondage of sin on your own. You can't get away from the power of sin controlling your life. It's natural for you to want to do the things that the world does. It's natural for you to get involved in the things that they get involved in. The only thing that can take you out of that slavery is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty and debt for sin. That's why he came. He died. He satisfied the righteousness of God. The debt is paid. And you can have freedom indeed by coming to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who has saved us from our sin. Trust in him today, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Our Father in God, as we talk about freedom, something that we in the United States of America enjoy so much of, we're thankful for that. But above all that, I thank you for the freedom spiritually that is offered in Jesus Christ the freedom from the bondage and the penalty of sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, even challenging those who had intellectually believed on him to realize that if they're truly a believer, they would continue. And I pray, Father, you'd use that even to challenge the people in this room. Father, help us to see the perseverance of the saints. The abiding in Christ is so essential as the evidence of us knowing you and belonging to you. Help us to just rejoice that you call us friend. The scriptures are clear on that. But, Father, we are also owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see that we are to go to you for our orders and that we are to trust and obey every day. Those who have not yet come to Christ, open up their understanding. Help them to come out of that bondage of sin, to trust in Jesus Christ who came, to die on the cross, to satisfy your righteousness. And we pray that they might trust in him today. Well, they have today. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.